Tonight we're in Isaiah chapter 10. And last week we were looking at, in chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, the Lord's messages of judgment to Israel. And it was a, a really pretty heavy oracle of judgment and warning from the Lord through Isaiah, his prophet, to the Lord's people who were disobedient and were in apostasy. Tonight we're looking at chapter 10, verses 5 through 34. And this remainder of chapter 10 really has kind of two distinct sections in it, two distinct sections. And and so those are kind of the two main points of our outline tonight. The first point comes from verses 5 through 19, verses 5 through 19, and that is a description of the destruction of the enemies of God. So verses 5 through 19 is the destruction of the enemies of God. And in particular, it is a woe, an oracle, or a uh, a speech, if you will, of judgment against Assyria. So last time, we looked at the fact that God was going to use Assyria to judge Israel. So this wicked, apostate, pagan, idolatrous nation, Assyria... God was going to use them as his tool, as his instrument of judgment to punish, to chastise his own covenant people, Israel, because of their disobedience. But now tonight, in this first section from verses 5 through 19, God is going to reveal through Isaiah that that even though he is using Assyria as his tool of judgment, God, in his justice still must punish Assyria because they are wicked as well. And so really uh, an overriding theme of this section is the sovereignty of God. How God can take a nation and at that time, the most powerful nation in the known world. And how God can use that nation and use its military power as a tool of an instrument of his own judgment for his people. Now, from a human perspective, and we'll even see this in the verses that we read tonight, from a human perspective, Assyria thought, look how strong we are. Look how great we are. Look how, look how mighty we are. We conquer everyone that we come across, and we're going to go down there to Israel, and we're going to conquer them. But from a theological perspective, Isaiah is revealing that God is allowing Assyria to do that. So even though they're prideful and they're selfish and they think it's all about their own power and strength, it's all because God has allowed them to do that. But when it's time for God to judge them, then their power will fade and they will fall. So it's all within the sovereign hand of God. So God is going to destroy his enemies, verses 5 through 19. And then the second section that we'll look at is from verse 20 to verse 34, which is deliverance for the people of God. So it's really two parallel ideas and two opposite sides of the coin, if you will. So you've got destruction on one side, but deliverance on the other. You've got the enemies of God on one side, but the people of God on the other. And so he's going to destroy his enemies, but he's going to deliver his people. 
And so we see that toward the end of the chapter. So let's look at the first section in which Isaiah reveals the destruction of the enemies of God. And so in verse number five, it says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. Whenever you see that word woe in scripture, it is a word of judgment. It's a word of warning. In essence, it's saying something like God's wrath is on you. God's wrath is on you. And so woe to you. Woe to you, Assyrian. And then notice how Assyria is described. The rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. In other words, and and who is the my there? The my is God, right? So my hand is God and in his hand is a rod or a club. Now, what, what do you do with a rod or a club? It's, it's an instrument of chastisement, right? I mean, think of, think of a switch or a paddle. It is in the hand. It is an instrument of chastisement, of punishment. And so from God's point of view, Assyria is in his hand. And Assyria has been the switch or the paddle, the rod in God's hand that he's going to use to punish Israel because of their disobedience. Verse 6, I send him against a godless nation. I send Assyria, he's the rod in my hand, I send him, Assyria, against a godless nation. Now, that should be shocking. Because who is Assyria going against? Israel. And Isaiah describes Israel as a godless nation. That's pretty, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? In that, that's the complete opposite of how they should have been known by, right? They should have been known as a nation of God-fearers, a nation who feared the Lord, a nation who obeyed the Lord, who worshipped God. And not just any God, but the one and only God. And now Isaiah calls them a godless nation. So it's kind of an, kind of an irony, isn't it? That you have a truly godless nation, Assyria, coming up against Israel, which has in effect become a godless nation because they've rebelled against God and they've totally disobeyed his covenant. So I'm sending him against Israel, who at this point in time is a godless nation because of their idolatry and disobedience. I dispatch him against a people who anger me. That is Israel. They have aroused the Lord's anger, right? His holy anger, his holy wrath because of their wickedness to seize, to loot, to snatch and plunder and to trap, trample them down like mud in the streets. It's a very, very vivid imagery, isn't it? It's uh, it's the idea of raiders, of bandits coming in and looting and stealing everything and and anybody who gets in their way, they just step on and trample in the streets. And so that's what Assyria is going to come and do to Israel. But they're the Lord's tool in doing that. Verse 7, but this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. 
that is this this right here is a very very clear description of how God works in history and of how his sovereignty works so from the point of view of the Assyrians they have no idea that they're being used by God for anything in fact from the Assyrian point of view they are they are their gods are stronger than Israel's god Because in the ancient world, if you conquered a nation, that was testimony to the fact that your gods were better than their gods. And so from the Assyrian point of view, they're thinking we're better than the God of Israel because we're conquering them. And from their point of view, they're just doing what they want to do. They want to go. They want to loot. They want to steal. They want to take over. They want to destroy. They want to expand their territory. That's just what they do. And that's what they have been doing to nations all around them. But what God is saying is, no, 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 what you don't realize is from a higher perspective, from a sovereign perspective, even while they're doing what they want to do, they're my club. They're my rod in my hand, even though they don't recognize it. And so then beginning in verse eight, Isaiah describes the the pride and the arrogance of Assyria. And so you can see in verse number eight where it starts with quotation marks. So these are now words that Assyria would say as, uh, as an example of their pride. And so Assyria would say, are not my commanders all kings? What does that mean? It means that from the point of view of Assyria, all of his generals and all of his commanders, his lower generals and commanders are equal or even better to the kings of other nations. So it's almost kind of like saying, my, my lower-ranked people are better than your highest-ranked people. So my commanders and generals, they're even better than your kings. Verse 9, has not, and then really beginning here in verse number 9, is kind of Assyria listing out all of its conquests and all of its accomplishments. Has not Kalno fared like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? Verse 10, as my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria. What is this? This is still the words of Assyria in their pride and their arrogance. Basically in verse 9, they're saying, look at how these dominoes have fallen. So isn't Kalno like Carchemish? In other words, Kalno fell just like Carchemish fell before it. And is not Hamath like Arpad? In other words, I conquered this nation, and then I conquered this nation that was just like that. And then I conquered this other nation that was just like that one. And then I conquered the next nation that was just like that one. In other words, all of these, what you would call great powers, they're just falling like dominoes before me, the king of Assyria says. And verse number 10 My gods are better than all your gods. My hand sees the kingdoms of the idols. So like in verse number nine, all these kingdoms that were listed. And he's saying all those kingdoms, they're better than your gods. So Carchemish and Kalno and Hamath and Arpad and Samaria and Damascus, their gods are better than your gods. And I already conquered them. So how do you think you're going to fare against me? is the the message there. So just more pride and arrogance from Assyria. Verse 11, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images 
as I dealt with Samaria and her idols. So I conquered Syria, I conquered Israel, and now Judah, Jerusalem, I'm coming down against you. Just like I conquered their gods, I'm going to conquer your gods. Here's the difference. Is up in Israel and Syria, they were worshiping false gods, weren't they? So Israel, the northern kingdom, really from the beginning, they were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping Baals, Ashtoreth, all these false Canaanite gods. But in the southern kingdom, in Judah, they had been at least at times known for worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. But from the point of view of the Assyrians, they're just thinking that Yahweh is just like all these other Near Eastern gods that they've already conquered. And so they're going to come and conquer their God or gods, however they view it from their point of view, just like we've conquered all these other gods. But what they don't realize is that the God of Judah, of Jerusalem, is not like the other gods that they've conquered. Because those gods are nothing, right? The God, the one true God of Judah, of Jerusalem, is the only God who is, the only God who exists. And when they come up against him, they're going to see just how mighty he is. But in their arrogance, they think, and they're boastfully announcing in advance, this is what we're going to do to you. So we're going to come down and we're going to take care of you just like we took care of Samaria and her gods. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Verse 12 is like a transition. So verses 7 through 11, we're basically kind of describing in quotation form the arrogance and the pride of Assyria. But now Isaiah is showing us that in verse 12, when the Lord has finished his program of punishment against Israel and Judah for their sin, when he when that has finished what he intends for Assyria to do as the rod in his hand, then the Lord will turn then and judge Assyria for the evil and the violent that they are and for their arrogant pride. So verse 13, for he says, that is Assyria, He says, by the strength of my hand, I have done this by my wisdom, because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures like a mighty one. I subdued their kings as one reaches into a nest verse 14. So my hand reached for the wealth of the nations as people gather abandoned eggs. So I gathered all the countries, not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. You can see it's very boastful words, isn't it? So verses 13 and 14 are more boastful words from Assyria. And Assyria basically saying, I did all of this by my own strength. All of this conquering that I did, it was out of my own wisdom, and it was easy. It was so easy. It was like, it was like snatching eggs out of a nest without the mother bird being there. No opposition. It was just so easy. Go in, take, leave. No trouble at all. That's kind of the the idea of these boastful words. Verse 15. Does the axe raise itself 
above the person who swings it or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up or a club brandish the one who is not wood. What is this saying? Well, it's going back to verse five. What did verse five say? Verse five at the very beginning told us what is the rod in God's hand? It's Assyria, right? So God in his hand is holding Assyria as his tool, as his instrument. Now, verse 15 is returning to that image. And now in, in crushing and tearing down the pride and the arrogance of Assyria is basically saying, Assyria, you're a piece of wood. Can you, a piece of wood, decide to hit and strike the one who is holding you? Can you, if you are an axe, can the axe decide instead of chopping the wood to chop off the arm of the person who is holding the axe? That's the image. And, and basically Isaiah is saying, Assyria, you're just an instrument. You're just a tool. You're just a piece of wood. How dare you say that you can do whatever you want to do against God and against his people? That's just as ludicrous as a stick in a hand saying, I'm going to beat the one who's holding me of my own will, of my own accord. And Isaiah is saying that's just ridiculous. It, it's, it goes against nature. So therefore, verse 16, the Lord, the Lord Almighty will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. Under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. The light of Israel will become a fire, their holy one, a flame. In a single day, it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. A lot of imagery here from earlier in Isaiah. Now, what, what are some of the purposes of a fire? It can give light, right, in the darkness. It can be used to cook food, you know. So there are positive purposes for a fire, right? Give light, cook, give warmth, heat. But they're also very destructive uses of a fire too, aren't they? A fire can destroy. So in verse 17, it calls God the light of Israel. And as the light of Israel, he can be used to give light and give good to his people. But he can also, as a, as a consuming light, turn and consume his foes. And so God is the light. He can be used for good to bless his people, or he can be used for wrath to judge his enemies. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. So the light of Israel is going to become a holy flame that is going to push back against Assyria. And in a single day, in other words, with kind of like one fell swoop in, a, in an act of judgment, it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. Remember earlier, this goes way back to chapter 5. Israel was described as a vineyard. Do you remember that? Israel was described as a vineyard. And the Lord had taken care of this vineyard. He had planted it. He had cultivated it. But this vineyard produced sour grapes. Referring to their disobedience and their apostasy. And so the, in Isaiah 5, Isaiah said, So the Lord's going to let his vineyard kind of go to waste. And what's going to grow up in it? Thorns 
and briars and thistles, which are representative of Assyria and the enemy coming in to a, to give trouble to the Lord's vineyard. But now, at a point in time one of the Lord's choosing, he is going to push back as a flame, and he's going to consume all those thorns and briars that were in his land, in his vineyard. And so the Lord's flame is going to push back against Assyria. Verse 18, the splendor of his forests and fertile fields it will completely destroy, as when a sick person wastes away. And the remaining trees of his forests will be so few that a child could write them down. So this is speaking of Assyria. So this flame, the Lord's light is going to turn into a flame and is going to consume Assyria. It's going to burn everything up, all the way from the thorns and and thistles, all the way to the great trees and forests. And it's going to be so devastating that the imagery is a, a child who doesn't know very much and can only count so high could go out and count the few remaining trees that are left in the forest. So that's, that's how devastating the Lord's judgment against Assyria is going to be. So Israel disobedient. God uses Assyria as a rod of judgment to punish them, but he only lets them go so far And then, as a part of his justice and righteousness, he turns his attention back to Assyria and brings them down low and humbles them because of their pride and arrogance and judges them. And in so doing means then deliverance for the remaining people of God. Verses 20 through 34. So 5 through 19, destruction on the enemies of God. 20 through 34, deliverance for the people of God. So Assyria's fall would prove catastrophic for them, for the Assyrians, but God's people would rejoice, right? So it's the other side of the coin. And Isaiah is describing the the victory that they would experience as the Lord goes with them to fight for them. Verse 20, in that day, when we see that phrase, sometimes it can mean the day of the Lord way off in the future, but really it can refer to any day in which God comes to act, either in judgment or in mercy, but it's a day in which God comes to act. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Now, in order to understand that verse, you have to understand the situation that we've described earlier in Isaiah. Okay, do you remember the historical situation? You've got Isaiah and Syria forming an alliance because they're worried about Assyria, their power. And Israel and Syria are attacking Judah in the south. Judah, instead of trusting the Lord, King Ahaz, remember that? Instead of trusting the Lord, he sent messages to Assyria to seek protection from him from Israel and Syria. But it ended up backfiring on him. Because instead of trusting in princes, instead of trusting in human strength, he should have trusted in the Lord. 
But because he didn't trust in the Lord, then Assyria came down and not only conquered Israel and Syria, but now was threatening Judah as well. But God's going to push him back. God's going to, God's going to judge Assyria and in, in so doing is going to teach the people of Judah, this is why you should have trusted God all along. Instead of trusting the person who was actually coming to trample on you, you should have trusted in God. Because he's your deliverer. And so don't, don't rely on the one who strikes you down, the king of Assyria, but rely on the Lord. He is your deliverer, the Holy One of Israel. And so the Lord's going to deliver. But here's the thing. Only some will be delivered. There are many who are going to be defeated as a result of this attack of the Assyrians. But there will be a remnant. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. And this whole idea fits in very much into what we've been talking about in Romans 9, isn't it? In Romans 9, Paul has been talking about the fact that there is an Israel within an Israel. There are spiritual people, God-fearing people, within this larger body of Israelites, many of whom don't follow God and don't worship him and don't obey his words. And so within the whole nation, there is a remnant. There is a chosen people, an elect people, if you will, within the larger people. And Isaiah is referring to that here. So many are going to fall into judgment, but there is a remnant who will be delivered, rescued by the Lord. And the next two verses are actually verses that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9. Though your people be like the sand by the sea, Israel, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the, the destruction decreed upon the whole land. And so there's a, there's a nation, but within that nation there's going to be a remnant that is saved. And Paul uses that to illustrate why it is that in his day, there were many, many Israelites who were not believing in Jesus as their Messiah. And all of these people in Paul's day who were not believing in Jesus as their Messiah, they're just like the apostates of Isaiah's day who were worshiping false gods and who were oppressing their neighbors and who were not caring about justice toward one another. And so God's going to save a remnant out of those people. And he's going to deliver them. And, and that's within God's right to do that, isn't it? That's within God's right to, um, among this wicked people, to save and to rescue a remnant that he's going to show grace to. Verse 24, Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Syrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. That's the same message that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz back in chapter 7. Don't be afraid. In fact, back in chapter 7, Isaiah said to King Ahaz, ask for a sign. Anything. Ask for a sign in heaven above and the depths below. Ask for a sign and the Lord will show it to you to prove to you that he is going to watch over you and protect you from this Assyrian threat. But 
he didn't trust. So, same message. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you. Why? Because I'm the one holding that rod. I'm the one holding that club. And they will only go as far as I allow them to go. And when they are, when I am done with my purpose with them, then they will stop. And I will judge them. So don't fear them because I'm in control. Very soon, my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. Meaning, Assyria, they're still right now my rod of judgment, but very soon my wrath toward you is going to be over and I'm going to turn my attention of wrath toward them and judge them. So don't be afraid of them because they're in my hand to do with as I please. So the Lord Almighty will lash them with a whip as when he struck down Midian at the rock of Oreb, and he will raise his staff over the waters as he did in Egypt. Two biblical stories there that are used to illustrate the Lord's deliverance of his people. The, the first one, the one at Midian, is from the book of Judges, and it's Gideon, right? So he uses Gideon, his small little army of 300 people, the Lord's power, he delivers Israel from, from the hand of the Midians. And then in Exodus, this huge, mighty army, Pharaoh and all his chariots pursuing them, and he delivers them through the waters of the Red Sea. In other words, two, two times in biblical history where the people of God were greatly outmatched, greatly outnumbered, a a stronger, superior force threatening them, and God came to the rescue. And God is saying to Isaiah, to the people of Judah, it's going to be the same this time, just like then. Verse 27, In that day, their burden, the burden of Assyria, it will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from off of your neck. The yoke will be broken because you have grown so fat. Now, you might think, wow, that's, that's an insult. Not really. From, from the perspective of Isaiah, the idea here is that God is turning around his, his blessing toward you again. Whereas you have been in times of leanness and, and poverty and oppression because of the Assyrians attacking you. But when the Lord's hand of blessing returns to you, you will grow fat again. In other words, you'll have all that you need and it will push off the yoke the burden of the Assyrians on you. So it's an image of prosperity, returning to the Lord's people. Verse 28, they enter Ayoth, they pass through Migron, they store supplies at Michmash. Verse 29, they go over the pass and say, we will camp overnight at Geba. Ramah trembles, Gibeah of Saul flees. Cry out, daughter Galim, listen, Laisha, poor Anathoth. Madmina is in flight. The people of Gabim take over. This day they will halt at Nob. They will shake their fist at, at the Mount of Daughter Zion, at the hill of Jerusalem. Now, you may not recognize all of those places, and I'm not necessarily going to go into all the details of where those places are or how they fit into history, but the general idea of what is saying here is for a period of time, it's going to look like Assyria 
is an unstoppable force. So they're just going to go from town to town to city to city, just moving as quickly as they want to move. And here's their encampment of soldiers from here to there to there, making their march toward Jerusalem. And it will look like there is nothing that can stand in their way. But at a point in time, the Lord is going to put up a wall, basically. And he's going to stop their advance and he's going to repel their advance. So that's what verse 32 is saying. This day they will halt. They will stop at Nob. They will shake their fist at the, at the Mount of Daughter Zion at the hill of Jerusalem, shaking their fist in fury, shaking their fist in anger, uh, saying all kinds of, of thing, of threatening things of what they're going to do to Jerusalem. But the Lord is going to repel them. And by the way, most think that when this is fulfilled is when Sennacherib and all of his armies approach Jerusalem. And they're threatened by this large army and the Lord wipes them out. You can read about it in Isaiah 36 to 39, as well as in the book of Kings. And so it is, it is this advance from Assyria with Sennacherib as the general, but the Lord stops them. And by his mighty power, not by any might of, Israel, of Judah's army, but by the power of the Lord, he repels them and he defeats them. And so verse 33, see the Lord, the Lord almighty, he will lop off the bows with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an ax. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. And those last two verses are just a symbolic, a, a picturesque way of describing how the Lord is going to defeat Assyria. It's, it's going to be like just leveling a forest, taking them out, all the trees, even the mighty trees, the thick trees, the tall ones, the cedars of Lebanon. God is going to take them down one by one, but there's going to be nothing left. Just like at the end of the first section in verses 19 and 20, where it said that even a child could go out and count the trees because there are going to be so few left. So Assyria right now is God's hand, uh, is his rod in his hand, judging his people. But when he, the sovereign Lord, declares he is going to turn his attention and his wrath toward them, and he's going to judge them, and in so doing, he's going to rescue a remnant from of his people. Now, we could take that same principle and we could apply it to the end of days. In the sense that on the last day, God's wrath is going to be poured out, isn't it? On the last day, God's wrath is going to be poured out. And all who are not found written in the book of life, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. But there's a remnant that's going to be saved, isn't there? There's a remnant that's going to be saved. Jesus describes it in Matthew 25. When Jesus stands there as the judge, he's going to have goats on his left hand, sheep on his right. And he's going to say to the goats, depart from me into everlasting judgment. But to the sheep, he's going to say, come, welcome, enjoy the kingdom of your Lord. And so at the same time, judgment and salvation. That's what's happening here. Judgment for Assyria but it means rescue for the remnant. Same on the last day. Judgment for the enemies of God, 
but rescue, deliverance for the remnant of God.